Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz. The Seahawks held their second mock game of training camp on Wednesday this week. They took Thursday off, and now we're just two weeks away from the start of the NFL season. Here to talk about the mock game as much as he can and the start of the season that is quickly coming upon us, Joe Fan of NBC Sports Northwest, as well as the Talkin' Seahawks podcast. Joe, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate you. You know, I was looking back at past episodes, Joe, and you were on the day that Clowney was traded for, and I think the day that Greg Olson signed. So are are we going to be breaking any news uh, transactions today? <laughs> I hope not. It's the day off of the Seahawks. I'm hoping to step away from my phone and laptop here soon after we get done with this conversation and, uh, and unplug just a bit. So hopefully not, but you know, you never know with this team. Well, we did get to see that Justin Britt and Paul Richardson, former Seahawks coming in for a workout. And that's kind of been the, the bigger news in terms of transactions this week. No, no signings yet, but potential there for, for a couple former Seahawks to come back to the team. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at Philip Dorsett's foot and and how concerning that might be. I mean, Pete Carroll said he's feeling better, but, you know, obviously the Seahawks still feel the need that, that they can add uh, some depth here to the wide receiver spot. And, you know, with Josh Gordon still not being reinstated, they're going to give Paul Richardson a look. And, uh, you know, the Justin Britt one to me is much more interesting because, you know, I think it's an indictment on the B.J. Finney signing. And I said that on social media, you know, when this wall went down and some people you know, wanted to fight back at me and say, you know, it doesn't mean anything, but you know, it does. And I think it's an indication that they're at least considering bringing in another center. And there's no reason why you should have to do that. If BJ Finney is the guy you expected him to be paying him four and a half million guaranteed and Fethan Postage is making progress. Like you think he's making progress, but the reality is if, if, uh, if they don't trust BJ Finney, they need a backup center for week one, because Kyle Fuller suspended the two for the first two weeks of the season. So, um, you know, that's why they're looking into Brit. Pete Carroll said he didn't know whether or not he's in football shape and is cleared for football activities. But, you know, again, I, I think so far, um, and Brian Schottenheimer and, and Pete Carroll have both given really lukewarm kind of messages on Finney, you know, basically as negative as it gets for them, where, you know, Pete Carroll's saying he's having, you know, still learning the system and, you know, they can't take away, you know, away reps from Russ and, and all that when, the offense is trying to get gelled together and BJ Finney's trying to get up to speed. Like that shouldn't happen for a veteran. You're paying that kind of money. Granted, he's never been a full-time center, but you know, still, I, I think it, again, it, uh, it isn't an indication that um, that signing is not working out as, as well as Seattle had hoped for. So both those situations, uh, interesting ones to monitor. Yeah. Some of that, it, you could maybe attribute it to having a somewhat abnormal off season and not, and not having, that full kind of off season to get up to speed with the, uh, the Seahawks system. But at, at a certain point too, it does have to go back to the player on, on picking those things up as a veteran. I get that center is, is a more um, dense position from a mental standpoint than say right guard. But uh, Damian Lewis as a rookie is coming in, has gotten nothing but rave reviews ever since stepping in the building. And he's had as much practice time as uh, BJ Finney has. So again, I, I think there's, areas to cut him some slack and understand that it is a weird year but it's a weird year for everybody and so you know while that is a part of it you know it's also on him to make sure he's getting up to speed and you know you had the whole offseason program to learn the mental stuff and so if it's not transitioning over to the field i think that you know brings cause for other concerns so um again you know i'm not saying he's never gonna play a snap with the seahawks but you know the early returns have not been positive 
two mock games so far for the Seahawks. One of them cut short due to injury to Brandon Jackson. What's it been like for you, Joe, to sit in the press box with no fans in the stands and, and watching these mock games? Honestly, we've been going down this COVID path for so long. It's just like, this is what it is now, especially that. I mean, it feels like a practice, but even the game situations, once they get there and there's another team on the other sideline, you know, I still think it'll be weird for a second, but you know, we're looking at cardboard cutouts at baseball games every day. And we're, you know, watching NBA games in a bubble with virtual fans at home on their computers. You know what I mean? Like this is something that's, it's not even the new normal anymore. This is just normal at this point. We've been, feels like we've been, you know, preparing for this so long. So I think it'd be weirder to feel like you'd see fans in the stands. Cause you'd be thinking, Oh my gosh, they're not socially distanced. Right. You know how, how is this happening? You know what I mean? Like we're getting back to the old normal is going to be weird at this point. Right. So I don't think that side of it is going to be too jarring. Um, I think everyone will get used to it pretty quick. I don't know if I'll be able to get used to the, this fan noise that they've come up with the fact that they're trying to keep it within like a certain decibel range for the whole game, whether it's offense, defense out on the field. Did you get a sense of that at all? Uh, they're playing with the, the crowd noise and figuring out what level they want it to be at. And you know, obviously the weirdness of it is it has to be the same at all times. Um, so much of the energy of a football game, sports in general, but really a football game more than others is the energy of the fans. And that's especially the case of CenturyLink Field. So um, again, I think it'll be bizarre for a bit, but you know, it's one of those things that one, you'll be just thankful football is happening in any capacity. And then, and then two, you know, you'll just get used to it because again, it is, it is the normal now. Well, we are just two weeks off from the Chiefs and the Texans kicking off on Thursday night football. One of the things that I'm really excited about, Joe, is seeing what Seattle can do with Russell Wilson and what are really his five best offensive weapons on the field at the same time. And I don't think there's a question of who those five are that that are going to be kind of his main surrounding cast with Chris Carson, Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, and then Greg Olson, their big offseason signing on offense, and then Will Disley coming back from injury. Um, it's it's a personnel grouping they haven't traditionally used a, a big part of, but I think this is going to be their their best package going into the season. Yeah, and I wrote about that this week, actually, asking Brian Schottenheimer and Greg Olson about 12 personnel and the benefits of that. And, you know, Brian Schottenheimer basically said, like, you know, out of that personnel, we have versatility, guys are interchangeable. Uh, we have an answer for everything, you know, whether it's, you know, the confidence in the running game, the passing game, no matter what the defense is showing you, um, I think is really important. And that's the value of having two tight ends on the field that one add to your uh, ability to block both in the run and pass games, but also they're seam stretchers and they're guys who are reliable uh, on a down to down basis. And, you know, especially in the red zone, right with Will Disley's per game touchdown numbers are ridiculous. So I am really interested to see because the last couple of years, it, uh, it was like in 2018, they were 12% out of 12 personnel. And, and in 2019, it was 14%. So really never using it for all intents and purposes. You know, this, is, this has been a predominantly 11 personnel team. And right. now, you know, you, it's on coaching staffs to make the most of, of their best players. And like you said, it's um, pretty, pretty much undeniable that their best uh, five guys are the five names you mentioned, which means 12 personnel is going to be heavily utilized in Seattle in 2020. And I'm excited to see how that looks again, just because we haven't seen it from this team. Any big takeaways from you that you're kind of able to talk about from that mock game on Wednesday? Not really. Um, and I don't mean to say that like, it's just to dismiss it, but it, to me, the mock games are so much more of the cadence of a game day 
getting there early, going through your early warmups, having the opportunity to go through a full pregame warmup with your team, going into the locker room, what that timing is like, the the going back in for halftime and coming back out onto the field. I mean, those are parts of the dress rehearsal and that's for everybody, right? That's from a communication standpoint between coaches, doing substitutions, all those different things. They tried to make that as game-like as possible. The actual play itself, I don't think it's it's still more of just a kind of a practice than it is this super competitive replacement of a preseason game. So I think it was beneficial for the team, but I don't think you're walking away. I mean, even Marquise Blair, two picks yesterday, and um, I get the excitement over him. He's one of the fan favorites already, which is pretty impressive given the fact that he didn't play a whole lot last year. Um, and everyone, you know, wants to crown him as, um, you know, a guy who is the next best, you know, DB in, in Seahawks history. And he might be that, but, you know, two interceptions against Anthony Gordon on pretty horrific throws isn't going to tell you that. So um, I just don't think positively or negatively there's anything too important to glean other than some of the injuries. Philip Dorsett's foot is worth monitoring. And Brandon Shell rolled his ankle, which potentially leaves a hole on the right side of your offensive line. Still two weeks till, you know, kick off on September 13th, but um, an injury worth monitoring. I guess what I think about the the opportunity that at least these mock games provide is some live tackling because that's not something that the Seahawks really do in practice. And looking back at last season, Joe, I saw that the Seahawks were in the bottom five of the league when it came to missed tackles last season. And I, I don't think that's something that people have really talked about a whole lot in terms of their just sheer number of missed tackles last season. It was something like 130, and then you had a team like the New England Patriots at the top of the league in the 60s. So, I mean, a, a ways off from, I think, where they should be. And and so I am kind of curious to see what they've done in, in the offseason or through training camp to really try and turn that number around. Yeah, I, I don't know how much live tackling there was yesterday. I mean, a, there was a little bit of taking guys to the ground, but players aren't getting lit up. It's not, you know, full contact. It's still more of the thud than it is full speed. You know, so so like uh, again, uh, style tackling, even less than that. You know, I mean, not every play is ended with the the ball carrier being taken to the ground. Like, there's plenty of plays in the open field where you wrapped them up or kind of touched them up, and that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, I I don't know. The Seahawks might be a vastly improved tackling team. They might not be, but we're not learning that right now. Another thing that can be difficult to decode is the hype around particular players. I want to talk about what you've been seeing in Camp Joe, what hype we should believe, and maybe some players we should be wary of based on some of the things we're hearing. We'll talk about that coming up next. I'm joined by Joe Fan of NBC Sports Northwest and the Talking Seahawks podcast. With Marquise Blair earlier, you were hitting on some of the hype around him, both from within the team and from fans. It's hard <laughs> this time of year, uh, unless uh, unless they're talking about a guy like B.J. Finney, who you brought up in the way that they're talking about him by essentially not hyping him. It's it's hard to tell what to buy and what not to buy in on. Who are some of the guys that you think that fans should be buying into the hype uh, coming uh, here through training camp? I think two rookies, Damian Lewis and DJ Dallas, are two guys worth buying in on. They'll both those guys have been a mainstay every practice, really showing well. I think Alton Robinson, it's a crowded defensive line depth chart, but he's another name to keep track of. So really some of the rookies have been really impressive. I think oddly enough, 
Jordan Brooks, his name has been more quiet. And I think that's what it's all about. It's about sifting through Pete Carroll's comments and figuring out, okay, what is this guy? You know, what is he telling us? Because he's never going to come out and say, this guy's been a disappointment, but there's, there's levels of, of what kind of praise he gives on guys, right? There's the gold standard that's DK Metcalf. And I would say Damian Lewis has been, you know, far closer to that than anything else. And there's, you know, the Greg Jennings, you know, praise where it's very much of, you know, he's coming along and he's working hard and, you know, trying to take it day by day and whatever, whatever, as opposed, you know what I mean? Like right. that's, that's negative as far as, as far as Pete Carroll goes. And I think Jordan Brooks has been more to that degree. And that's not to say, you know, he, he's going to get cut, obviously not. Right. But, you know, I don't think he's come in and, and really claimed the role that they thought he might. And so to me, it's very much still LJ or not LJ Collier, uh, KJ Wright's job. And, you know, Jordan Brooks is, um, going to really have to work at it. And so, you know, I think they've issued a challenge to him like, Hey, I don't know if his mind wasn't right coming in, or if he just kind of expected to walk in and uh, be given playing time right away. I'm not sure. Right. And again, Pete Carroll's never going to tell you that he's going to keep all that in house. But, you know, I think it has been interesting to hear what he hasn't said about Jordan Brooks compared to some of the others. Yeah, with Jordan Brooks, I, I heard him talking about what good shape he's in, and that also falls into the category of LJ Collier, I think, talking about the shape that he's in. So I, I feel like if he doesn't have anything especially positive to say, he kind of defaults to how they they look in terms of their, uh, you know, and, and maybe there was some improvement in the offseason as far as their uh, physical ability to get in shape. But to me, that doesn't tell me how much of how they're going to be performing on the field come this year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, LJ Collier, the jury is still very much out. I mean, and you are not going to know till till week one. But uh, even though Pete Carroll says he's a new guy and transforming all these sorts of things, yeah, I mean that's absolutely a wild card. And you know, until you see it in week one, and you know, him stack good games on top of each other who knows what LJ Collier will become, but I think it's very fair when fans will tell you that, you know, they have no expectations for him and, or very little expectations for him. And, you know, I can't say I've seen anything during camp that would scream, Oh my gosh, this guy is transformed and he is poised for a breakout year that you didn't get to see last year. What's been your overall sense of the defensive line and and how that's coming along. You mentioned it in terms of depth and, Alton Robinson, you know, really trying to be a part of that that depth along the defensive line. I, I don't think there's any question about the back seven for the Seahawks with their linebackers and their secondary right now. But it's that that front four group that, yes, they addressed it by bringing in Bruce Irvin in the offseason, brought in Benson Mayoa. So it feels like they've improved in terms of depth, but they still don't have that guy, it feels like, that uh, that can really disrupt. Yeah, I agree with you. And this is my thing with both offensive line and defensive line. You knew going in that their biggest deficiencies were potentially in the trenches on both sides of the football. So if the offensive line looks tremendous or the defensive line looks tremendous, I'm taking all of that with a grain of salt because until they do it, you know, it's different than you look down in the Bay Area and the reports coming out of uh, Nick Bosa going against Trent Williams, right? And this kind of Titans clashing and practice every day. It's like, well, you know what you're getting from those guys, right? Like Trent Williams, one of the best left tackles in the league. Grant hasn't played in a while, but like that to me, especially a guy of his caliber screams fresh body rather than just going to be rusty. Nick Bosa, defensive rookie of the year last year is an absolute stud where you have Brandon Shell going against Benson Mayoa. And what's the takeaway if Brandon Shell does really well or if Benson Mayoa does really well. And so I am going to reserve, I'm not going to make any proclamations, positive or negative, 
about either line until you see it in the regular season. You know, I think you can make notes. Yes, uh, Damian Lewis has been really positive. I think Benson Mayo and Bruce Irvin have had good camps. But again, you know, I'm not looking at, you know, Bruce Irvin and Benson Mayo dominating the Seahawks offensive line saying Seahawks pass rush is going to be just fine. They're going to have 37 sacks this year and be insanely better than they were a year ago, right? Um, the only reason I will say they'll be better than a year ago is because Jamal Adams is there. And I think he's the best pass rusher on the roster. But um, again, I think the jury is still out on both lines and, and again, will be until we get into the regular season. The offensive line can't get worse, though, right? I mean, you still have the same two guys on the left side of the line with you, Potty and Brown. I guess uh, even at center with Joey Hunt spending so much time at center last season, I feel like Posick can't be a downgrade. And, and with the right side of the line being the one that struggled the most, swapping out Fluker and Effetti for Shell and, and the rookie Damian Lewis, I, I don't necessarily see how that could be worse. Oh, I agree with you. There's a difference. The same goes for the defensive line, right? Like you can't get much worse than 28 sacks. Like it would be really hard to do. Like you're going to luck your way into more sacks than that. Um, just out of sheer, you know, regression to the mean. My point is like how much better, right? Like I don't want to say or make any of those statements of, you know, trying to quantify um, or qualify how much better either line is compared to what the Seahawks put on the field a year ago. Yes, they should be I mean, at worst status quo, because again, it's hard to get worse. But, you know, so I do expect improvement. But again, what does that improvement look like and how impactful is it? Does that lead to one more win? Does that lead to more comfortable wins and less um, kind of nail biters down to the wire where the Seahawks had 11 and one, one possession games last year? I mean, all those sorts of things are, are part of the equation. And um, while it's really easy to say the lines will be better, um, that doesn't tell you a whole lot, given what you know you just alluded to, and so I agree with you. And uh, I just don't. I want to be very cautious about too much of an evaluation when you have a questionable offensive line going against a questionable defensive line every single day. Well, I think that was one of my takeaways too in training camp when everybody was hyping up uh, Damian Lewis. You know, pancaked L.J. Collier in practice, and it's like, I'll do. <laughs> Am I going to be excited about this, or should I be? Somewhat disappointed. And I guess that's what happens whenever you go uh, uh, teammates upon teammates. Well, and the nuance there is like, you know, the fact that he's comfortable and the fact that, you know, it doesn't feel too big for him and the speed of practice is not overwhelming him and he's ready for the workload and goes about his job the right way. And, you know, Bruce Irvin is saying he's, you know, respected what he's seen from him. And, you know, when your teammates and coaching staff are calling you out, you know, you're doing something right, you know. So that doesn't mean he's going to be a Hall of Fame right guard, but at least you know, settles the nerves of this guy's going to be capable to do it in week one, right? You know, how good will he be? Who knows? We'll find out. But it's, you know, that's the exact point. You know, when you talk about BJ Finney, people want to, you know, disagree with me and say he'll be just fine, give him time, all sorts of things. Like, I hear you, but the season starts in two weeks. They paid this guy four and a half million dollars, right? So if you can't even get to the point of where your teammates and your coaches are comfortable with you at that spot, then that's when things are concerning. And so I think that's what you can feel good about with Damian Lewis is that, you know, he doesn't seem to have those issues. Yeah. And even without really seeing much apart from some of the highlights, I think that for Damian Lewis, the big thing for me was hearing Dwayne Brown bring him up in conversation. And he's not one who brings up players just to give them unnecessary praise. You know, he talks about guys on the defensive line that that he was going up against. And he mentioned Bruce Irvin and he mentioned Benson Mayoa. And then I think he mentioned Alton Robinson, and that was that was really it. So to hear praise from Dwayne Brown 
in, in both the guys on the defensive line and then the rookie Damian Lewis. I, that said a lot to me. Exactly. And then again, keep in mind, who have they not said uh, much about? Like how much right. have you heard Bobby Wagner talk about Jordan Brooks? Not much. What have you heard said about BJ Finney? Not much, right? Again, so those are the things that you need to be in tune with when you're listening to Pete Carroll speak about guys or players speak about guys. I think that is honestly just as good of a barometer as you're going to get. Well, looking outside of the NFL this week, Joe, you know, you you were covering San Francisco four years ago when Cap first started his protest. And then just this week, it was four years later from the start of that. And we see the Milwaukee Bucks starting a protest that shuts down, really shuts down the NBA in the middle of their playoffs, uh, followed by some teams in baseball. On Thursday, we heard the NHL canceled all their playoff games uh, with regard to to help support the the protests going on right now. What's it been like for you to just watch that evolution after being there in San Fran to what it is today? And I mean, it's kind of unfortunate that it's four years later and we're still talking about the same issues of police brutality. But what's it been like just seeing that evolution going from the anthem to now canceling entire games? Well, I think it's man, it's a dense subject. And, um, you know, I think when it first started, it was about raising awareness and getting people to acknowledge there is a problem. And, you know, I think part of the issue is some people still won't acknowledge there's a problem, but by and large, awareness is there, right? There has never been more support for the Black Lives Matter movement than we have today. So you have the awareness. Okay, but now at what point are you able to pivot from building awareness to enacting change? And I think that's part of the problem. And that's not to say that what happened yesterday was wrong or it was the wrong move or what instead, you know... I, I don't know what the answers are, but the thing is that you know, listen to Shaquille Griffin speak yesterday after the mock game. He doesn't know what the answer is either, right? These guys right. are professional athletes. They weren't going into this career thinking they were going to be social activists, you know, tasked with being the leaders in this movement. And um, you know, so you understand why some players don't want to be a part of that, and you understand why some people, you know, some of the players have really, you know, care, you know, picked up that flag and um, and been the ones to to carry the torch and 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 lead the movement and all that. So. Um, it just makes it a huge challenge, right? And I don't know how you get there from, again, pivoting from awareness to action. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, I think I'm hopeful. Um, but certainly, it's this is just, it's wild. It's unprecedented. And, um, you know, I, I guess for me, um, you know, it's disappointing that, that so much of the conversation to me feels like it's in bad faith. And, you know, we're not able to keep the main thing about the main thing. And, um, but man, it's, it's tough. And I commend those who are doing their best and, you know, people want to, you know, ridicule players for, you don't know what you're doing and you're making it up as you go. Like, yeah, I think they are, but you know what? Like they've gotten to this point where, you know, we keep trying to bring up awareness and nothing changes and you kind of feel hopeless of like, what do we have to do? Do we have to sit out games? Is that going to be the answer? Um, you know, so, um, I respect those guys for wading into those waters so aggressively um, and, and standing up for what they believe in. And, um, you know, it's certainly a learning experience for them. It's a learning experience for all of us. And, um, you know, I guess that's I guess that's all I can say, man. I, um, it's wild. It has come to be such a big part of the sports world now. And so, you know, addressing it from you know, your perspective as, as one of the things that you cover and hear from the athletes in the press conferences, 
it's really, you know, one thing that has changed, I think, in the last four years is I think we've gotten away from the stick to sports commentary. I, I feel like that was a, such a big, a, a much bigger part uh, of it four years ago, whereas I, I think people accept at least athletes to have an opinion on things that are outside of football now. Yeah, I, I think you just said it perfectly. I don't really have a whole whole lot to add to it. Um, you know, I think, again, from, from strictly my standpoint, you know, we need to find a way to pivot from powerful words and gestures and symbolic um, actions to figuring out how we're going to come up with solutions. And that is the $20 trillion question that um, I think everyone's trying to figure out what, what the hell to do. Um, the Seahawks included, um, us included, athletes included, every one of us included, right? You know, to be a part of the solution. But what does that look like? And, you know, you hope. Um, you know, there's some leadership and people that have policy making power and, um, you know, where we can start kind of mending this country and healing this country and getting it to a place where we can all feel good about it again and, and, um, you know, try to heal and move forward together. But, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in the meantime. Absolutely. Joe, you had Evan Silva on your latest show, talking a little fantasy football on the, on the Talking Seahawks podcast. Definitely something for people to check out there as well. Anything coming up that you want people to know about? Oh, that was a fun podcast. I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, just kind of, I really enjoy playing fantasy football. And now that, you know, I, I work in the NFL and you're not really a fan of a team anymore. It's, it's fun to have your fantasy team and different players you can, you can root for and have fun with and, and drink a beer and watch a game and have a vested interest, uh, you know, outside of, you know, you don't have to be on the clock. So um, I really love Evan's work. I think he's fantastic. I think Seahawks fans will really enjoy it. And, and honestly, some really positive thoughts on, on what the Seahawks um, have from a skilled player standpoint. So um should be a lot of fun. I appreciate you, you know, giving some love. Hey, you know, once people get done listening to the, the to this show, Joe, they're going to need some more Seahawks talk to go for. And, you know, with fantasy football, you know, the, the season's starting up. They're going to need to know, uh, especially what Seahawks to go after and avoid in fantasy. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Joe Fan, follow him on Twitter, Joe underscore Fan, F-A-N-N. Appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much, man. Always a pleasure, as always. We'll talk to you soon. A big thanks to Joe Fan for coming back on the show just a couple weeks until the start of the season. Go on over to fieldgoals.com for all of the latest news. One thing Joe and I didn't get to was Jamal Adams slicing his finger, cutting strawberries. Fortunately, it was relatively not a serious injury but it was enough to keep him out of Wednesday's mock game. Alistair Corp has the details of some of the latest injury news from Wednesday up at fieldgoals.com. Also on the site, Mookie Alexander with the article there about Pete Carroll's recent comment about not ruling out the possibility that the Seahawks and other NFL teams could sit out games. Follow along with that up at the website, fieldgoals.com. Subscribe to this podcast, sbnation.com slash NFL podcasts, a big feature story with Russell Wilson on the cover of Sports Illustrated this week. I want to go in-depth on that in the next episode, so be sure you're subscribed and get that in your podcast feed as soon as it's out. Until next time, go Hawks!